You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting live for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. Later in the program, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with music writer and author Stephen Deusner, who recently wrote a book about the alternative southern rock band, The Drive-By Truckers. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, October 20th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Indiana University has recently joined the Midwest Climate Adaption Science Center, which is an organization of universities and natural resource agencies that is focused on supporting scientific discoveries that will help Midwestern states respond to the climate crisis. The Midwest CASC will fund individual research projects that will center on this adaption to climate and particularly how it will affect the tribal communities of the Midwest. The program hopes to share the knowledge learned to rural areas throughout the Midwest to help those areas become more prepared for the effects of climate change. Last week, President Biden appointed Deborah Shore, a wastewater treatment official from the Chicago area, as the new director of the Environmental Protection Agency's Midwest office, which encompasses Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. The Midwest office coordinates work between the states and promotes efforts to clean and protect shared areas of the Midwest, such as the rivers and the Great Lakes. Recently, the focus of the organization has been on dealing with wastewater pollution and contamination of drinking water. This appointment represents President Biden's bold plan to address environmental issues through an approach of reinforcing the power of governmental organizations such as the Environmental Protection Agency. One of the key environmental policies in President Biden's Build Back Better reconciliation package is likely to be cut due to opposition from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. The main environmental policy is called the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which would offer $150 billion total to energy suppliers who make the switch away from fossil fuels and to renewable energy sources. Climate experts have cited this program as being one of the most significant policies that could prevent global temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is a threshold that, when crossed, will result in the most dangerous effects of climate change. It is important to note that Senator Joe Manchin benefits financially from the coal industry, so left-leaning Democratic politicians believe this to be the root of his opposition. These politicians are planning to protest Manchin's decision. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsaffel.
At the COVID-19 press conference on October 15th, Health Director Penny Cottle shared the Board of Health's recommendations for Halloween and the holidays with friends and family. She said it's important to get vaccinated now so the vaccine can be effective in time for the festivities. If you want a more normal holiday with your family and friends, make sure that you are fully vaccinated. It does take about two weeks to build up the prote protection that you need, so vaccinate now. Uh, make plans with safety in mind. And it doesn't matter if we're talking Halloween, um, Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, whatever it may be. Make your plans with safety in mind. If everyone is vaccinated, then you can take recommend, recommended precautions and your risks should be very low. Do watch community transmission and adjust your plans accordingly. It, the higher the transmission level in the community, the more precautions you wanna have in place. With trick-or-treating, this is mainly an outside activity. Um, your community officials will set whether or not there's community trick-or-treating hours. But if you are looking for things that you can do with your family, just know that outside activities are what you want to do. Avoid crowds, being indoors with people who are unmasked, unvaccinated. You know, last year in our neighborhood, we did Halloween. We did it outside. It was great. We took lots of precautions and it was one of the best nights, um, one of the best trick-or-treating nights in my neighborhood that I've experienced. So it can be done. It can be done safely and it can still be very enjoyable. President of IU Health, Brian Shockney, said that getting the seasonal flu shot, in addition to the COVID-19 vaccine, helps make the holiday season more safe. We look forward to the downtrend as we continue to approach the holidays that we all love. Uh, speaking of holidays, um, we don't want a scary holiday, as Penny Cottle said. What plans are you making to ensure safe holidays as we gather with friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers? You know the best way to prepare is to get vaccinated, not only for COVID-19, but now it's time for your seasonal flu shot. Uh, this in addition to ensuring we wear masks, practice excellent hand hygiene, and keep our physical distance when we're in, in close spaces with those not in our immediate family. You know, reducing the number of people becoming sick from the flu will help reduce the hospital admission rate. So we're seeing admissions with COVID, but we're also seeing admissions with flu. Shockney added that the hospital is still struggling to schedule the surgeries that had to be postponed due to the latest surge. He said that this surge has been more aggressive than the others and resulted in individuals being hospitalized for longer periods of time. Our patients who have COVID with this Delta variant are sicker and their lengths of stay are longer than what we saw previously. So where we would have patients previously in previous surges who would discharge quicker or would have long, less lengths of stay, we're seeing a longer length of stay with many of our patients in, in this surge. So that's keeping patients in the hospital. And then we're also seeing a higher number of patients uh, who are coming to us, even though we see uh, lower rates because of this Delta variant being so aggressive uh, to our patients, specifically those who are immunocompromised or have other comorbidities. And so it, it really does affect uh, the, the human body in a way much more severely than the previous variant. 
The next COVID-19 press conference will be held on October 22nd. Now it's time for your feature reports. Author and music writer Stephen Deusner listened to the drive-by truckers on his headphones as he walked daily to the local coffee houses in Birmingham, England. The band's songs and lyrics made him think of his own hometown in the American South. So Deusner decided to write a book about the alternative Southern rock band. The book, Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers, is about much more than a musical act. It's about the American South what it is, what it was, and how we perceive it. We turn to host Michael Glab for an excerpt of that interview. And Big Talk This Week welcomes a music writer, an author, Stephen Deusner. Stephen, hi, thanks for being on Big Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, the University of Texas Press just last month put out Stephen's first book, period. That's correct. First book. The book is Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. The Drive-By Truckers, one of those huge, not huge bands that people in the know know about. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't say that they are uh, a blockbuster band or anything like that, but they have a very large fan base and an extremely avid fan base. But they've been going for about 25 years this summer, as a matter of fact, and have so many albums. I can't remember the name of the, the how many are. I found out they have 19 studio and live albums. The range of your book is global at this point because a, a magazine uh, called Americana UK reviewed the book, I did an interview with you, and they had a little quote about this that said, this book is clearly about the truckers but it is also about the South. What did they mean? For me, as somebody who grew up in the South, I was born and raised in, in Tennessee and have family in Alabama. It was really profound of, for me to listen to this band and hear them sing about places I knew. And, uh, and it sounded like people I knew. And I think their larger project over these last 25 years has been documenting the South in a way that takes in all of the beauty of the South, but also all of the ugliness of the South too, and lets those things sit side by side. So it's never one thing or another. One of their songs talks about a concept they call the duality of the Southern thing. Hmm. And I think that that duality points to that pride you feel in calling this place your home, but also that shame about what's happened there and the violence and the racism that's happened there and continues to happen there and, and obviously elsewhere. And so for me writing this book, it wasn't, I just didn't want to simply tell the story of a band, but I wanted to show how they depicted that place and all of that intricacy and contradiction. And, you know, I, I thought that that was, a way to show how art can speak to something bigger and something 
that's still going on in a, in a lot of ways. The book distributors have little blurbs when they're trying to describe what the books are. And on one of the major books distributors website, uh, I found this. Deusner discovers how their music shifted the way we view the modern South. What does that mean? How did we view the modern South before them? And how do we view it now? That's a very good question, and 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 I do think that there is a shift that comes along with this band that I think is is you know they're propelling it in some ways, but they're also reflecting a shift in how we think about that. And I think you know even just looking at the way we talk about racism these days, or the ways we talk about this is a good question, and I want to make sure I address it well because nobody's yeah. asked me that, and and. Uh, Maybe let's move along and All right. we can return to that if that works. It's it's a question. It's a really good question. And it's just something that for some reason I, I haven't had to put into words. And so maybe I can finesse this uh, as sure. we move on a little more. Stephen Deusner, uh, as a freelance writer, he's written for a, a number of the big music magazines and various uh, general interest publications. He's written for Pitchfork, Uncut. Salon, Paste, The Village Voice, The Los Angeles Review of Books even. Uh, why did you write about music? Are you a musician? I am not. One of the great tragedies of my life is I don't have any musical ability whatsoever. But I think I'm a good listener. There is something about the decision for people to express themselves by writing songs and, and writing melodies and things like that, that I really find fascinating and I've always gravitated toward music. I just find that that whole culture around it so fascinating. You know, I just started it as sort of a hobby. I stumbled into it when I lived in Memphis and just wrote album reviews on the side. And then when my wife started getting fellowships and jobs around the country, I just packed up and moved with her. And I was I was kind of the portable husband, she calls me. <laughs> um, and so I can do this anywhere. I can do this anywhere in the world. And I've done it in a lot of different places. And, and uh, I've even done, I, we were even in living in England, which is where the roots of this book are. It's been fascinating to, to write about music in all these different places that have their own cultures and their own music scenes. Interesting you should bring up England because uh, you and your wife, she had a fellowship and you moved to Birmingham, England a few years ago. And speaking of the South, when you were telling people, hey, I'm moving to Birmingham, uh, they thought Alabama. <laughs> well, my, my mother lives in Birmingham. And so when I told her, she was like, oh, you'll be right next door. You'll be here and I can see you all the time. And I was like, oh, no this is England. And uh, she actually thought that was even better because she'd get to come visit me. <laughs> when you were in Birmingham, England, uh, the story goes that you had to walk more than a mile to get to a coffee shop. And while you were walking <laughs> that mile, you would listen to the drive-by truckers on your headphones. Is that how you became uh, obsessed with them? Or are you obsessed with them? <laughs> well, I'm definitely obsessed with them. I was already obsessed with them when we moved over there. I've been, I first started writing about them in 2004. And so I've been obsessed with them for a, a long time, but in England and making those 
long walks in a place that was, you know, it's somewhat familiar, but it's still a little bit new. And then listening to this band that reminds me of home, that reminds right. me of where I grew up. You know, my my brain just started to sort of make notes about all the places they mentioned. And I really started to think about place in relationship to this band. And that's how the sort of book kind of sprung forth. It, it, I thought that you could write about this band through the places where they've lived and the places that they've written about. So when I got ready to sort of pitch this to a press, that's the sort of approach I use, a sort of a geographic story of, of them rather than a chronological story about them. Your wife is an art historian and uh, over there at Birmingham, England, she taught a class called Monuments and Methods. This got you to thinking about the Confederate monuments. And you found, this is interesting. I didn't even know this. This is something that you discovered. You found that the Confederate flag was never the flag of the nation or the wannabe nation called the Confederate States of America. It was some kind of unit's battle flag. It was, it was, and that was surprising to me. I mean, I know that in Southern Rock, the sort of Confederate flag is a major sort of symbol. Like when Leonard Skinner played, they would often use that as a backdrop. And when the drive-by truckers came up, and maybe this speaks to the question that you were asking earlier about how our thinking has changed about the South, they specifically did not want the Confederate flag anywhere near them. They did not want it in the album packaging or on stage or anything. In fact, Patterson Hood, uh, one of the songwriters for the band, has written uh, an op-ed in the New York Times saying that we need to get rid of this as a symbol of the South. It has such a fascinating history, though, because it, it comes from uh, a battle flag it was a square with yellow or gold fringe. It was never associated with the Confederacy until many years later, until the 20th century, when the KKK started up again and became experienced a resurgence in, in a lot of different places, Indiana included, and adopted the Confederate flag in a slightly adapted form. So it became a rectangle and it lost a lot of the fringe. And that's the symbol that we know today. That's the symbol that we see flying in a lot of places where I, it really it really shouldn't be flying. And, and I think even uh, even yeah. in non-South places, Indiana's full of Confederate flags. It really is. It's it's shocking when when we leave Bloomington and, and get out into the country here. I see more up here than I see in Alabama when I'm <laughs> when I'm in, in rural Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, during the Birmingham trip, we took a trip to Germany to visit my ancestral village, uh, a place called Dassenau. And we hiked uh, a long way to get there. And as we're coming down the mountain, this mountain into this, this very scenic, beautiful village, we pass by a house. It's the first house we've seen. And it is flying a Confederate flag. We've gone halfway around the world and we still see this thing. And I later found out that it's flying a Confederate flag because Nazi flags, Nazi symbols are outlawed. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. this is what they use as a substitute. And so that <laughs> should tell you 
how the world sees this flag as a symbol of hatred, as a symbol of oppression, as a symbol of keeping other people down. You know, in that article that I mentioned, you were quoted as saying, I didn't plan to write about Confederate monuments as much as I did, or about their war songs as much as I did. But you did. And again, the book is called Where the Devil Don't Stay, Traveling the South with the Drive-By Truckers. It's about the band, the Drive-By Truckers, but it's more about the South as well. So why did you write about the monuments and the, and the war songs? That's just where the material led. Once I sort of started digging into the band, especially with this idea of place, that's the stuff that just kept popping up. I mean, when I wrote the, the I wrote a chapter on Richmond, Virginia, which is one of the first markets where they really broke. It's also the home of Wes Freed, who is an incredible visual artist who does all of their album covers and tour posters. He's the artist who did the book cover. And I'm just over the moon that I have a Wes Freed on my book. And so when I started researching Richmond, obviously that's the capital of the Confederacy. So you've got this band that's trying to redefine what it means to be Southern, finding a toehold in the capital of the Confederacy. You know, I'm writing this chapter and I'm having to update it constantly because last summer, the George Floyd protests completely changed Monument Row in Richmond, where you you suddenly had these Confederate monuments that are being removed from public spaces or graffitied or tagged with Black Lives Matter. I think it's the Lee statue there that had a picture of John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, after he passed. They projected that onto the, the statue. I found that so fascinating and, and kind of beautiful. It's like we, we keep asking, what do we do with these monuments in public spaces that represent such an ugly history? And I think that's maybe the best answer is that you just, people just get together and they take it over and they turn it into what they want or need it to be. You know, another example is in Gillsburg, Mississippi, which is where Leonard Skinner's plane went down, middle of nowhere. Truckers have written a lot about Leonard Skinner. That was the county where some of the last American slaves were held huh. in peonage. There was a woman who had grown up in slavery in that area and was finally freed in like the 1960s. She huh. and her family had no idea. They were just kind of kept away from the world and kind of passed around from different families. And uh, they didn't realize that they were in slavery. They didn't realize that this was now unlawful. What are the odds that this plane goes down right there? To listen to the full interview, visit WFHB.org following this broadcast. Now it's time for Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB Community Radio. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Well, 
Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Con artists and con games go way back. Some believe the first one involved a snake and an apple. Over the centuries, unscrupulous minds have come up with a great many ways to separate suckers from their valuables. But there aren't really all that many different kinds of fraud, just endless variations on some classic schemes. The more you know about them, the easier it is to know when you need to beware. The term confidence trick itself is an American term, first used in 1849, when the press reported the trial of one William Thompson, who would strike up a conversation with a stranger and skillfully ingratiate himself as a friendly, decent fellow. After gaining the stranger's confidence, he'd ask his new friend to loan him a pocket watch, probably about the most valuable thing most guys carried around back then, and would simply walk off with it. Confidence is key in every swindle. The grifter gets a victim to trust, to believe in, things that just aren't true, including the basic honesty of the con artist, and other plausible things like whether something is really valuable or actually available, whether something is going to happen or when it will happen, and most famously, the prospect of getting something valuable without having to pay what it's worth. When something looks too good to be true, it probably is. That's the biggest red flag in the signal bag. And if you can remember to make that an alarm clock for your suspicious nature, you'll be far less likely to wake up poorer some fine morning. The other factor common to all con games is this. Somewhere along the line, the victim is led to assume that something is true. So always remember the old adage, when you assume, you make an ASS out of U and M-E. The best way to spot a fraud is to check, double-check, and triple-check everything yourself all the way along. One of the classic get-rich-quick swindles is called the Spanish Prisoner Game, and you've almost certainly encountered its modern form, the Nigerian Fraud Letter. The swindler has a line on something very valuable. A wealthy person held prisoner in Spain was such a famous example that the name has stuck. However, a pile of money in a third world bank works just as well these days. Or a legal claim against a big corporation. Or a cache of gold or jewels. Whatever. The victim is asked to put up a modest amount of money which will free up this big bonanza and promised a dazzling share of the reward. Often there's a built-in reason to keep things secret, like the need to skirt around some other country's law or our own tax collectors. That's just one of the classic con games you can learn to spot when you know how they work. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzappel and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Michael Glapp. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, Email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for Hereabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio. Coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 